0: Good evening and welcome to the Muller Time Podcast. I hope all of you are doing well. I'd like to uh, start by just thanking all of you who reached out to me and uh, said hello on our uh, one-week vacation. Uh, It did occur to me that not everybody is on social media, uh, so I I tried to let everyone know that we were taking a week off on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. But uh, thank you all of you for your emails. That really meant a lot to me. And I'd also first like to start by thanking our Patreons. Our newest Patreon is Gerlinda, And uh, anyone else who wants to become a Patreon and support this show, it is patreon.com backslash MullerTime. Now, as I mentioned, uh, the reason we took a week off is basically to read and process the Muller Report. Uh, You may have noticed in the weeks uh, that have passed, and especially the day that it came out, that... Everybody had sort of, um, and when I say everybody, I mean professional journalists, people on TV, they had to take right away. Now, admittedly, that is their job, right? You sort of have to say something, but I was watching this coverage and then at the same time, starting to look at the Mueller report and I was like perplexed. How could these people know these things so fast? And after spending, and by the way, tonight is really just going to focus on part one. Okay. Uh, I consider myself a reasonably smart person and I am still at a loss to how our professional journalists and people uh, on TV really were able to read and um, sort of digest and process it so fast. And then of course, I came to the realization that they hadn't, they hadn't, even with a team of people, the Mueller report is still largely unknown by the public. Now, yes, I know that you read it because you listen to Muller time and you're an educated person. But upon my first reading, I don't think it's possible to really digest this thing without having read the entire thing at least three times. That's my impression. And over the next year, (laughs) when I have time, I'm going to be going back and reading it. There's, you know, it's a historical document. There's so much information in there. Tonight is going to focus just on part one. And what I really did when I was reading it was just I just want to talk about the things that jumped out at me. That's what tonight's show is. Uh, Again, the public at large really doesn't know what's in there or understand what's in there. And I have some thoughts on that that I want to get to at the end of the show. Uh, But what I'm trying to say is that if, if I find it challenging to digest the Mueller report, and I'm sure you at times did too, what is the average person in this country going to do? People, you know, working people full. I mean, all of us are working people, but you know what I mean? People, you got kids, you got a full-time job. I mean, you're going to read 450 pages. And part of what I want to do tonight and part of what I think anybody who's involved in this, what I do here, what we do here is to, to explain this and really bring it, um, you, you know, bring public attention to it. Now, that's the point of the report. That's what Mueller and his team did. But uh, even still, there, there is some value to having a type of a, uh, for lack of a better phrase, a cliff's notes of this thing. So uh, as you know, the Mueller report is divided into two sections. OK, so the first section, part one, is devoted to the Russian interference in our election, the hack. Right. And that in uh, part two is obstruction of justice by the Trump campaign. And I'm going to get to that in another episode. Uh, I really just focused on part one. And that's, like I said, tonight is really just about the things that jumped out at me. And if there's something that jumped out at you, uh, it's Time Podcast at Gmail. And just let me know what you think. And we'll, uh, you know, we'll bring that up. So, oh, by the way, one more thing. the In typical government bureaucracy, I sound like a Republican, but it really was so hard to read that PDF document or I found it hard. So I I went ahead and bought the Washington post version, uh, the ebook, which was really so much easier. And, uh, you can kind of search through it. I posted that on our, on the Mueller time Facebook page and immediately I started getting all these comments. It should be free. It's like, yeah, it is free. <laughs> but I'm just saying, this is a better, this is a better way to look at it. So, um, Mueller report part one. Okay. So the, the the main thing I took away from this, and again, Mueller had his reasons for indicting or not indicting, and we will get into that in a upcoming episode, which is really part two. But the overarching thing I wanted to say was that, as you know from reading it, this is literally the guiltiest group of people, not in American history, in the history of the world, of modern civilization. I mean... You're reading it, and yes, there is a difference, of course, between what can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, how a prosecutor thinks. Uh, but reading it, if this wasn't so serious, it really would be almost comical. Uh, it's just, it's it's 220 pages or so of just every person in that campaign being the sketchiest, shadiest person around. And um, so, these are the things that jumped out at me. I kept a running list all week. Okay. Um, the first is that the, the internet research Agency's campaign, uh, even before they focused on our election and just uh, when I say campaign, I mean the general disinformation campaign actually has a name and it's called project Lacta. Now that just sounded like something out of a James Bond movie. So I thought that was actually kind of cool sounding as messed up as that is, so I just wanted to bring that up. It's called Project Locta, and a bunch of that stuff is heavily redacted, but I was not aware that it had a name again that's the internet research agency's component uh into the fake Facebook ads and stuff. The disinformation and the hack at large had multiple components you know it had the g r u component it had other components, but that was't the main one uh secondly. Trump campaign officials helped organize rallies that were created originally in Russia. Now, the point they make in the um in the Mueller report is that supposedly the officials didn't know that in other words, and they don't name them for that reason but what they're what they're saying is is that someone in Russia would create a Facebook page for having you know let's say a rally rally in Florida for this and that. And then they would get actual staffers to go ahead and do the work. And then Mueller and them went out of their way to say that they didn't know it. So, okay, but again, (laughs) and yeah, I believe people can be used, but it's is—it's pretty amazing. Um, Okay, the second thing, I mean, you really got to wonder. They didn't make anyone else, any other campaign do that kind of thing, right? Also, this is still... I probably mentioned this on about five podcasts, but still my favorite story in this whole thing was that the, the Russians got a Trump supporter to go in front of the white house with a birthday card for the head of the internet research agency. I believe they call that trolling master level unlocked or grade a troll. That's amazing. (laughs) You know, you gotta just gotta kind of laugh. Uh, so secondly, Michael Cohn says that Trump Jr. definitely told Trump about the the Trump Tower meeting. Uh, and of course, Trump says he didn't, but Michael Cohn says that he was aware of the infamous meeting about the so-called Russian adoption, which is really to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. Uh, Jr. denied that and Jr. Uh, was never interviewed for, I think, a variety of reasons, which we'll get to in another episode. Donald Trump. Now, this was one of the biggest takeaways of things that I I found amazing. And you want to talk about conspiracy or collusion or whatever word you want to use. Trump personally told Mike, general Mike Flynn, the national security advisor to find Hillary Clinton's emails. Okay. Now, as if that's not amazing enough, Flynn then, as you would say, sort of he hired or he he uh outsourced or <laughs> asked two people to do that job, okay. One of them it, name is Barbara L- Ledeen, okay? Now I was not familiar with Barbara Ledeen. So as usual I went online and started doing a little sleuthing. And I went to Barbara Ledeen's Twitter page and it's just it's just frightening Barbara Ledeen is is a staffer for Chuck Grassley. And I mean, right now, right now is on the government payroll. It's scary that someone like this would even be in government. Yeah, it's one thing to have views or even very extremely conservative views, but her social media feed, it looks like a Russian troll. I mean, it's just not even far right. It's, 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 it's like to the right of Putin. And this person is a current staffer in the United States government. Her husband, Michael Ledeen, was on the Trump transition team. You know, you know, Hillary Clinton talked about the vast right-wing conspiracy. And I don't think anybody really, really believed that. But now we know that really there was a lot of truth to that, that there's these people out there and they're, it's, like, it's like cockroaches. They're just, they're just below the surface and then they just come out. They come out when, when the timing's right. I don't know if that metaphor really works, but you, you, you get the general picture. So Barbara Ledeen goes about what, (laughs) I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up. First of all, she writes, she starts contacting different people, writing emails that are like, it's like a really bad spy novel. You know, you could tell that she was like sort of enjoying it and that she knew that she knew that it was wrong. That's, that's pretty clear. Uh, So she's reaching out to like various people and then she comes up with this, she writes this 25 page document about how they're going to get the emails and she's throwing around phrases like the dark web, clearly without even knowing really what that is. And then uh, on top of that, so she ends up getting some emails, but they were fake. Uh, Because again, this is, it's, again, it is almost comical if it wasn't serious. It sounds like a very elderly Fox news viewer who has decided that they're going to be like a hacker, you know, but they don't really know how to even boot up a computer. And then on top of that, she developed a plan that she said they could get the emails and have them translated by Iranian and Chinese intelligence. Let me repeat that again. A person close to Donald Trump wanted to hire two hostile intelligence agencies, hostile to our country, to To get Hillary Clinton's emails. I want to know why this woman isn't locked up right now. Because if you or I did that, are you kidding me? Iranian intelligence? So that part didn't even mention Russians. Um, you know, these people are ruthless. And they. I, I have to ask, how do you even think of something like that? It's, it's a truly dark place. Um, the second person that Mike Flynn... Hired was was Peter Smith. And that story is much more well-known. Uh, although there's a lot more to be found about that for sure. Because Peter Smith, right before he committed suicide, gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal, where he basically, I guess it was like a confession. I don't know, maybe he really liked the Wall Street Journal, or I guess he was a conservative. So that meant something to him. But basically, Peter Smith went ahead and uh he took Mike Flynn's order or whatever you want to call it and he started not just looking. This guy was very skilled at his uh you know, the dark art of, of politics and he went about putting together an an entire operation. Uh he engaged in a lot of behavior that anyone else would call uh shady or cr- criminal behavior, uh hiding his emails, Uh, He used, he actually used a technique called foldering, which is a technique that terrorists use where you write an email and save it in the drafts so other people can log in and read it. If everyone has the same password, that kind of thing. Um, He put together, you know, actual sort of professional letterhead, that kind of thing, saying that he was looking for these emails Uh, in the documents. He specifically referenced Kellyanne Conway, Steve Steve Bannon, and Mike Flynn as point men, as people who, you know, official people who had asked him to do this. So that of course brings them into the fold. What did they know? And of course, when did they know it? Right? So Smith was really in contact. It looks like with Russians, uh, he had real money behind this thing. And there's a lot that's still not really known. But as opposed to the Ladine lady who it looked like was sort of off in cuckoo land a little bit trying to learn how to boot up a Mac computer, this guy, um, this guy was a serious player. And he really, uh, you know, go back and look at that Wall Street Journal interview. Now, when Mueller's investigators were onto him, he committed suicide in a motel, right? And let me just be the first to say, I mean... I don't know. Like they say on the wire, you play in the dirt, you get dirty, you know? Um, that's quite a way to go out. And, you know, it's fun. I was thinking about that. You know, the truth is a guy who conspired against this country, against you and I, a traitor, I don't much care really what happened to that guy, but the Trump people, they, do you think they ever, you know, contacted Peter Smith's wife? to offer condolences i these people they're dirty they have no scruples right that's how i mean there's a, there's more than a few people who are dead behind this thing and that's and that's a fact um eric prince the founder of blackwater and who also is obviously involved in this whole mets um you know brother of betsy DeVos, our secretary of education and uh of the infamous seychelles meeting he also funded the effort to find Hillary Clinton's emails. Now we didn't, I didn't know that. Uh, not the most, it's, it's a fairly obvious thing when you think about it, but again, new information. Um, Trump campaign officials, and specifically Kellyanne Conway, Brad Parscale, the current campaign manager to the next, uh, to Trump's 2020 campaign, Trump Jr. and Flynn all spread Russian propaganda again. Mueller goes out of his way to say that it was supposedly unknowingly right. Specifically, they're referencing Twitter. Every one of those people, Conway, Bannon, Flynn, retweeted an account called Ten GOP. You may remember that it was a fake Tennessee GOP account. I remember that account during as you as do you, and I remember looking at it and it was weird. I mean, I remember that even back then it was like, wait a minute, but you just, that goes back to this whole thing that none of us saw this coming. Cause that's not our job prior to this happening. It's not like it wasn't your job to understand that social media can be weaponized in that way. It was the job of, of intelligence agencies and of that's their job to protect us. And they totally, they totally epically failed. So I think the most any of us could do back then was just be like, Hey, this is weird. Like it says 10 GOP, but you know, the syntax is wrong. The language is wrong. But again, this wasn't in any of our realms of really, of, 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 you know, of possibility. So again, supposedly they spread it without knowing, but again, nobody else was spreading it like in that way. In other words, you didn't have 20 staffers on Hillary Clinton's campaign spreading it. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, also new information, Trump Jr. communicated directly with WikiLeaks, which was somewhat known, but here, here, here's the fascinating part. A guy named Jason Fishbane, or Fishbane? Fishbine? I don't know. It just sounds like a fake name you'd make up if you were like, I don't know, in high school or something, you're just like late for school. Hey, Jason, sorry, Jason Fishbane. Um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a joke there, but couldn't do it. Uh, a guy named Jason Fishbane contacted WikiLeaks. Apparently he's just some random dude. And he had found a password to an anti-Trump uh, site. And I guess he loved WikiLeaks, so he gave them the password. He himself had seen it on some message board. So WikiLeaks... Took the information from Jason Fishbane and Fishbine and they contacted Trump Jr. This part was funny a little bit because they told Trump Jr. that they had hacked it, which I thought was that to me is a little funny. That's like, it's like everyone in this sordid affair is just a hustler. They're all hustlers. Even this random dude, Fishbane, he's a hustler. He pulls something off a shady website and he gives a password to a confidential site to WikiLeaks, who then lies and said that they like, you know, went all hacker on it. When the truth is they just got it from a dude. They gave it to Trump Jr. And then Trump Jr. goes about contacting because he's a moron. He goes ahead, reaching out to other people in the campaign. Like, Hey, I just got this password to this site site that's against us. What should I do? So right away, he's showing that he's willing to communicate with WikiLeaks, a hostile foreign intelligence service. And they go on, um, they go on to have more communications And there's a lot I want to say about WikiLeaks, but I don't want to do it right now, but we'll be getting to that. Uh, Also new, Kislyak, the, the Russian ambassador, right after Trump won, he contacted, they contacted the campaign and he said, Russian generals need to brief you and we'd like to do it on a secure line. Okay. So right away, to any normal campaign, that's an enormous red flag. Why would, first of all, who ever heard of that? Why would you be getting a briefing from Russian generals? When you get a briefing from a foreign country, you get it from a leader. Uh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't get on the line with another one of their generals. So right away, something's wrong there. It's clearly a setup, a way to, again, uh, build compromise, get something bad on them. You know, it's an overture that's not supposed to be happening. So then it gets more comical in a, a sad way. Flynn says, we don't have a secure line. By the way, the reason you don't have a secure line is because you're not supposed to fucking be doing this. That that thought, I guess, never went through Mike Flynn's head. That's why transition teams don't have a secure line to talk to Russian generals. So then it gets better. Kushner then says, you have a Russian embassy. Why don't we meet there? Now the whole ball game should be over right there, right? Kushner has just suggested going to... A foreign embassy of a hostile foreign power, right? And communicating <laughs> securely with them. So then on top of that, this is this is number four of the story, Kislyak apparently couldn't it was so unbelievable to him that he actually said no. And I'd be interested to know why. I think I think it was too much. I think even I'm sure he went back to Putin and told him and it was like, wait a minute, if Kushner actually gets caught doing this, you know, we might lose our the golden goose. So he was like, No. But that had to be in a career of spying. And Kislyak is a spy. Let's, you know, let's not, Yeah, you know, of course he is. That must have been just like, I can, I can only imagine the laughs that they were having about that one. So Kislyak, so they declined. But again, Jared Kushner wanted to communicate inside the Russian embassy. This has been known for a while, but just reading it in the Mueller report was really something. Okay, now I'd like to get to at this point, what is the, in my opinion, the whole ball game, right? And you already know what it is. Paul Manafort, the campaign manager to the president of the United States, gave confidential polling data to Konstantin Kalimnik, who is a Russian intelligence operative at a restaurant in a building owned by Jared Kushner. Okay. And we learn more in the Mueller report that not only was it polling data, it was specifically polling data about battleground states. It's like, you know, you sort of like, what, what more do you really need here? He gave him the polling data. Then he, Rick Gates, and Kalimnik, all left by separate exits. And I think, at, that, uh, at least my recollection is, I don't know if they ever saw Kalimnik after that. I read that he got on a plane at Newark, New Jersey, and was gone. Okay. But again, they gave him the polling data about battleground states. Also, when all these guys would communicate, they used a phrase, black caviar. That was the, basically it would be like, Hey, do you want more black caviar? Yeah. Remember that guy? He gave us black caviar. It's like a comical going back to the wire. It's like just a comical way of hiding what you're talking about. Right. I don't even know why they bothered to do that because when you're It's like if somebody's listening, I'm pretty sure like the FBI is going to understand that. But for whatever reason, again, stupid Watergate, black caviar. So that was the phrase they use. Uh, We also learned in the Mueller report part one that Mark Burnett, who is really responsible for all of this because he's the reason that Trump is president, because he's the one who made him a Hollywood star. So Mark Burnett brokered a meeting in the Mueller report, between a shady uh, Russian oligarch and the Trump campaign. So they don't get into too much detail about that uh, in there, but again, something we didn't know. And it kind of makes you wonder Burnett's been very quiet. You know, maybe that's why. Maybe he's mixed up in this a lot more than just the apprentice. Uh, we also learned that Julian Assange, and like I said, we'll be getting to WikiLeaks in a much bigger way in a upcoming episode. We learned that Assange uh, not just pushed the Seth Rich conspiracy theory, Seth Rich, the, the, the DNC staffer who was killed on the streets of Washington in what, what uh, police say is a street robbery, and I'm sure that's what it was. Uh, and then was they imply that Seth Rich was the one who leaked the WikiLeaks stuff to WikiLeaks, the hack data. Anyway, we learned that Assange didn't just push it, that he created the Seth Rich conspiracy theory. Let me repeat that. Assange knew that he was getting the data from Russia. And when media attention came on him, he went on TV and started dropping that Seth Rich was really the source for the stolen data. And he did it in a very specific way, uh, which you would call plausible deniability. In other words, he literally brings it up out of nowhere. They're talking about something else. And he said, did you hear about this young man, Seth Rich, who was killed. Well, I can't say, but you know, you would you gotta wonder if maybe he could have been the source for this and they were that was retaliation. A truly evil sociopath. You want to talk about the word sociopath? That's that's Julian Assange. And it was funny because he called Hillary Clinton a sociopath in the what is obviously an act of total projection. Uh him and Trump, they're like made for each other. Uh, we also learned uh, m- that Manafort hired a guy named Tony Fabrizio. I just think that's funny. I don't have too much actually to say about Tony Fabrizio here. It's just he is an important player in this because he was, he was one of their biggest pollsters, and he worked for Manafort and Gates. Uh, there is a lot on him, but not too much in the Mueller report. But I just think it's awesome there's a guy named Tony Fabrizio involved in this, like a, a Goodfellas extra or something. Uh, we also learned that Peter Aven, the CEO of Alpha Bank, Alpha Bank is the Russian bank that had a lot of unusual traffic going back and forth between Trump Tower. He was heavy involved. He's one of Putin's top oligarchs, and he was uh, engaged in a lot of outreach to the Trump team. Okay. Uh, still don't know what happened with that that server, but a really fascinating part of the story. We found out that Hope Hicks got a call from Putin on election night and Hope Hicks. Uh, first of all, just process that for a sec. And then the other part was that they didn't know what to do and they didn't they didn't know how to evaluate anybody's call, whether anybody was real or not. So they just didn't answer it. And so Putin couldn't get through, which is kind of weird considering he just helped them win, but whatever. Um, okay, the Seychelles meeting. That was where Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater and uh, Trump confidant, flew to the Seychelles to meet um, in a meeting, I think, brokered by George Nader, a Russian oligarch about more outreach. So what we learned about the Seychelles meeting, which is one of the bigger parts of this entire escapade, was that Eric Prince and Steve Bannon deleted all their communications about this meeting that they were working on it together and they they used encrypted apps and deleted everything. When they told their stories to Mueller, they also told completely different stories where Bannon said that it was, I guess he was a little more upfront, that it was a meeting, a campaign related meeting and Prince continues to say that it was just a drink, right? You flew halfway across the world to a place none of us ever heard of to have a drink with a Russian oligarch. And they say that uh, Prince... I'm pretty sure Prince's name is in one of those twelve cases that is is uh you know has been farmed out because we know for a fact that he lied to Congress about that meeting. Uh, we also learned that Kushner met with VEB, uh, the head of VEB, which is a sanctioned Russian bank. And right after that, the bank published; they appeared in various Russian news or, uh, articles saying that Kushner had met with him on business. Kushner says that it was campaign business and all the Russian papers said that it was business business. Sort of interesting. You know, it, it, again, it looks like what the Russians were doing was sort of, again, more compromise, right? Meet with this guy. And just by being there, he's sort of instantly dirty and then floated to all the newspapers. Um, we learned the name Richard Burt a businessman uh, who was, again, another Trump associate and an intermediary. The part about Bert that was interesting was Bert's communications between um, the Trump campaign and Russian oligarchs, he went out of his way to hide things. He, In his emails, he calls the Russian outreach project A. He never wants to say that he's reaching out to Russians, showing that he knows that he's doing something wrong. He also repeatedly says that he's just a third party working for somebody else, which was a lie. He, in other words, he was putting distance between himself and them. Uh, man, I rarely do anything like lists, list podcasts, but this, I felt with this one, it's really important to just, again, these are the things that jumped out at me. Uh, when I read part one, uh, we learned that DC leaks, which was again, uh, one of the websites created by the Russians to leak the, uh, um, DNC emails and the D triple C, We learned that they gave that in advance to some journalists, uh, specifically the smoking gun, the gossip website, uh, a Florida blogger whose name I'm not sure I know, and uh, other ones as well. Mueller doesn't list their names uh, except for, I don't even think he lists the smoking gun. I just, I've read that somewhere else because again, the idea is that they didn't technically, I guess they didn't technically break any laws. So it's like, you know, they don't want to, you don't want to defame anyone's character. Uh, we learned that Jerome Corsi, the right wing uh, extremist, who is the source of many conspiracy theories, uh, had a proffer agreement when he talked to Mueller, meaning that he, although he insists that he did nothing wrong, he had an agreement where he couldn't be prosecuted for saying things, which is usually, that's the kind of thing that guilty people do. Uh, we learned that Stephen Miller and Corey Lewandowski were well aware of George Papadopoulos's outreach. Again, Stephen Miller, uh, still a top guy in our White House and Corey Lewandowski, who's been fired, but is is a Trump confidant, that they knew well that Papadopoulos was meeting with Russians, that he was reaching out to them. They knew what he was doing. And it was actually surprising how, you know, the joke about Papadopoulos being the coffee boy. And if you heard my interview with Scott Stedman, the investigative journalist, Scott was on the forefront. I think it's, you'll find that uh, one or two episodes ago. Scott was the journalist who proved to the world that Papadopoulos wasn't a coffee boy because that was the narrative till Scott started writing. And if you read the Mueller report, that really validates. I mean, you know, I take my hat off to Scott because Papadopoulos is so important in part one. It's actually amazing. His name, it must be the name that's, that's reflected the most other than maybe Trump, uh, really an important player. And there's still things that are going on with Papadopoulos. But the point is, is that Stephen Miller, whose name you don't hear often, and Lewandowski, at least regarding this, they knew what he was doing. Uh, I'd also like to add that the the most heavily redacted stuff in part one are involving WikiLeaks and the meeting in the Seychelles. There's a lot of speculation on why. Ongoing cases, Barr trying to hide things, but again, that's something that I think should jump out at everyone. That when he decided to redact things, you know, most of most of the mother part we can read. But that part about WikiLeaks is just page and page after page of just redaction. So what's going on there? And why does Barr want to hide it from us? Okay. So in total, those are the things that jumped out at me and when I read it. And the whole time I kept a list and that essentially are the things that jumped out. Um, You know, in the next episode, I'm going to go ahead and talk about part two, which is the Trump campaign and their overtures to Russia. And again, we're going to be coming back to this. It's not like we're going to stop talking about the Mueller report because this is far from over. But those are the things that jumped out. If there's something that jumped out at you that you think that we should talk about or that I should know about or tell people it's Muller time podcast at Gmail. Uh, you can also con- contact us on Facebook at Muller time podcast, Twitter Muller time pod. Instagram is Muller time podcast. Uh, my personal account is Eric LeVay, uh, E R I C L E V A I. Uh, there's going to be a lot to talk about, uh, in the, in the upcoming weeks. Uh, as always, I want to thank everyone lis- you know for listening and that who, uh, We're cool with just us taking a week off to read. There's so much in this document. And again, I do want to commend the special counsel and the people who worked for him for this amazing historical document. There's a lot of talk right now about the decisions, why things were made and weren't made. My personal feeling on that with regards to why Trump is still in office and not in a jail cell is that I need to know more about those redactions and I need to know more about the cases that haven't been prosecuted before I make a judgment on on certain decisions that were made involving this investigation. We have a long road ahead of us. Uh, As always, I want to thank you guys for listening. If you want to become a Patreon, it's patreon.com backslash MullerTime. This was the Muller Report Part 1, my impressions, and I'll catch you next week.